Okay. Namaskar. How to turn Thanksgiving dinner into spiritual practice or, or rather um, five ways to survive, not just Thanksgiving dinner, but also Christmas time family dinner. <laughs> you know, maybe some international audiences might be a little perplexed as to why we're having this discussion at all. So before we get into discussing how to turn Thanksgiving dinner into a very nourishing, wonderful time for you and everyone else involved, let's actually back up and just say a few words about why we're having this discussion in the first place. <laughs> yes, in case, in case it wasn't clear, the reason we need to have this discussion is because in America, I think arguably all over the world, dinners with family is an especially tricky thing. I, and, and I think Thanksgiving dinner is fraught with potential meltdowns and shouting matches and screaming matches. I've been told that that's more common in the East Coast by some people. You know, I'm not myself American, so I have to take your word for it. But from what I've noticed in my five years of being in this country, I've noticed, yes, indeed, um, Thanksgiving dinners are fraught. They're fraught with peril because one person just needs to say the wrong thing or say the right thing in the wrong way. And then before you know it, Stacy's kicked a chair over and she's screaming and she's running up the stairs because no one understands her. Mom and dad are fighting about how they misparented and raised their children wrongly. Children resentful of their parents are hiding away with their phones and iPhones, which only seem to make the parents angrier and only seem to make the kids less likely to engage and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so whatever your situation might've been or is or will be, um, I think we can be safe in saying that generally speaking, for everybody, not just spiritual practitioners, but for everybody, time with family poses unique obstacles, unique difficulties, unique challenges. Is that fair? <laughs> Can I say that? Can I say that it's hard to hang out with mom, dad, guardian, sisters, brothers, friends? And uh, I think it was Ram Das, I forget. I think maybe Ram Das, who said, if you think you're so enlightened, go and spend a weekend with your family, something like that. <laughs> I really like that quote. I think it's Perfect. Because, you know, you might have moved out of your home or some of you might still be living with parents. That's wonderful. This lecture will be even more valuable to you. But some of us might have moved out and, you know, moved away and started our lives in different cities. And we have our chosen family, you know, our friends. Madeline is just going to cook for her friends giving. So like that, we have our friends and we have our friends givings and we much prefer to be amongst our chosen family. You know, and, but, but it does happen, though, every now and then that we have some obligation to be with our families. And a lot of people resent that. They're worried about that. They'll do anything to get out of that. And they do. I've noticed a lot of people, rather than go to Thanksgiving dinner, will just evade for the rest of their life. They will run away from any family obligation. It's quite sad. They eventually become estranged from their you know, birth parents or guardian or brothers and sisters. And it's rather unfortunate. But notice, they're that afraid that they would not even go to the Thanksgiving dinner. However, those who do go to the Thanksgiving dinner find that they're being triggered in unique ways. And I don't mean to use that word in a psychologically you know, correct way. I just mean you're, you're getting your buttons pushed in, in particular ways. And you know, this is the predicament. While you are with your friends in the city living your life, you might've been working really hard at your spiritual life. You might've been meditating every day, studying all the right books, you know, attending lectures like this one and doing all the things that you know, a spiritual person does when they're away from home. And you might have felt like you've come some way in that. You might feel like, ah, oh, I'm now so much more peaceful and so much more grounded and centered. And maybe it does actually look that way when you go to work, when you hang out with your friends, you're much less judgmental, much less competitive, just all around a better person. And you're happy about that, as you should be. Then you come home for Thanksgiving dinner 
And it's almost like all those years and years of spiritual practice, the whole year of practice that you've been doing, all the working on yourself that you've spent hours and hundreds of dollars on, all of that seems to come apart in a second when mom just says that one thing that you really, really wish she hadn't said, right? Uh, have you had that experience? And, and it's really embarrassing. I mean, it's, yeah, thank you, Jamie. It's, it's hard for people in general, but I think it's uniquely hard for spiritual practitioners because there's this feeling like we, we should have known better. You know, we should have reacted in a more conscious, grounded, um, established way. And, and why is it that we've just regressed, it seems, back to childhood? Forgot, forgetting all of the, the lessons and values that we worked so hard to inculcate just over this last year. <laughs> so that's a pretty good, that's what I want to speak to today. This tendency to backslide whenever we're with our family, Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, or any other time when we're, we're with our family. I know sometimes there are other obligations too, like you might have to take dad to the clinic or something like that. And fights are likely to happen in the car, you know? So that's why we're having this discussion, because I think it's a valuable one to have. And I'd like to have it in a few ways. The first thing I want to do is diagnose why this should be the case. Why is it that parents, guardians, brothers, sisters, and maybe even childhood friends, why is it that the people of our past, or rather the people of our childhood, why is it that they push our buttons? What's, what's going on here? Why am I more likely to be made upset at a Thanksgiving dinner than at a Friendsgiving dinner? Why am I more likely to revert to my childhood temper tantrum when I'm with my mother and father and less likely to do that when I'm all by myself, a big grown up in, in a big city, living my life, et cetera. So what's going on? So that's the first thing. The first thing we're going to talk about is a, maybe some kind of a diagnosis as to why this should be the case. The next thing we're going to talk about is <laughs> actually a really profound teaching from the Mandukya Upanishad as to how to deal with this. So I'd like to deal with this in three ways. I'd like to give you three techniques that you can use while you're at Thanksgiving dinner or rather Christmas dinner or anything to take the sting out of it, especially when that thing does get said or when that button does get pushed or when those idiosyncrasies do rub up against someone else's. You know? <laughs> so I would like to offer first, I think, uh, a framework for reinterpreting that, for reframing that, and thereby uh, defanging it or taking the sting out of it. And we'll use the lesson from the Mandukya Upanishad. And that will give us two takeaways. One, we'll learn that we can for forgive because we can forbear. Then we'll learn that we ought to forgive because there are no other people and that everyone you see is actually just you. And the third thing we'll realize is from the... Uh, Bodhicharyavatara of, of Shantideva, which Yogatmananda Swamiji just talked about recently, we'll, we'll learn about why we ought not take things personally. And finally, we'll look at a lesson from Tantra. You know, Tantra will teach us what to do if we do get triggered, if we do get angry and we do feel upset and we do feel grief, like how to transmute that. So a little bit from the bowl of blood lecture. And then finally, the final thing we'll close is the post-mortem, dare I say it, the aftercare. What do you do after Thanksgiving dinner, after Christmas dinner? How can you still use your experiences, even though they were complete failures, how can you still use them in a productive way in your spiritual life? <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about it in these ways. So first, let's start. Let's diagnose the problem to the best of our ability. Why is it that our parents, our guardian, our brothers and sisters, and maybe to some extent our childhood friends, why is it that these people uniquely upset us? Why is it that they are able to, where others have failed, you know, what, what gives them the power to push our buttons? <laughs> Do they know a mantra? 
have they acquired some kind of siddhi whereby they're uniquely able to terrorize us and make us feel grief and make us feel angry? <laughs> no, I've been very lucky. You know, like my American family, my in-laws are like really chill, really grounded, hippie deadheads. So they're so chill and, you know, but before meeting my American family, before getting married to my wife and going and seeing them and all that, like I attended a bunch of different Thanksgiving dinners in the five years that I've been here. I've been to a few Thanksgiving dinners and, um, you know, in each one, someone will try to teach me American football. And thus far, I have not yet succeeded in understanding it. And I feel some kind of shame at that because here I am, right? Okay, good. Westerfer also. I feel, I feel better. See, I'm studying like formal logic via Aristotelian syllogisms. I'm studying formal logic via Navya Nyayaka, like formal Buddhist logic and form, formal like Vedantic logic. And I've been studying all these difficult texts. And I realized that nothing can come close to the complexity of American football. <laughs> I just can't understand what's going on, no matter how many times someone explains it to me. Anyway, typically, that's like the beginning of the evening. I'll sit down, you know, with one of the family patriarchs and we'll discuss American football. They'll very patiently, big shout out to all the people who have patiently walked me through the game. They'll patient, patiently tell me what, you know, what's going on. Um, and I still don't get it. But after that, Interesting things happen. Interesting things happen. Tensions start to arise. And everyone's like trying to play it cool. You know, they're making the dinner. But invariably, some tensions will arise. And sometimes you're skillfully navigated. They're there, but they might be averted. Other times, they cannot be skillfully averted. Someone's gone too far and uh, someone is made upset. You know what I'm talking about, right? I've, I've heard children stomp up the stairs crying out, Christmas is ruined. This is the worst Christmas ever. You've heard that? I've heard parents shouting at children. I've heard children shouting at parents. I've heard children shouting at children. And I've heard the awful silence that ensues. Usually, everything goes back to normal after a while. Maybe no apologies are even needed. It's just understood that that's going to happen. And maybe that's part of the fun. And maybe it's part of American tradition. And if it is, I'm sorry if I'm stepping on any cultural toes here in suggesting that it's something to change. <laughs> but... <laughs> After that, everyone seems to go back to normal. And the next day, if I do stay over, some new thing will, will result. Will result. <laughs> and there's some gossip and there's some tension. So anyway, this is the caricature, I suppose, that I place before you of the typical American Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner as I've experienced it over the past five years. Admitting my innocence here. you know. <laughs> so you'll have to tell me how on the money we are when we get into the Q&A. But now the question then is why? Why does that blow up happen? Why do people get mad at each other? Why is there tension? Arguably, it's because unlike other relationships in our life, the relationship with spouse, with parents or guardian, with brothers and sisters is charged with an extra dose of attachment. There is more me and mindness in those relationships than in other areas of our life. And anytime we approach anything in our life with attachment, we're bound to suffer. We're bound to experience some kind of contraction. So take, for instance, work. If you work in a spirit of attachment, that work will be a drag. You will resent going to work in the morning, even if it's in a career you like. I think this is even more harrowing, right? You could be doing your dream job, working the career that you love, like doing something that you feel really serves people. And you do have days where that's really rewarding. But if you're attached to your work, if it's part of who you think you are, if it makes up a part of your personality, if you value being seen a certain way as a result of that work, here's what's going to happen. There will most of the time be a drag 
in doing that work. You'll have to drag yourself into the into the office or into the school or whatever else it is that you do, um, and you'll feel tired. You'll come back at the end of that workday and you'll be pooped. And maybe all you can do is turn on like Netflix and just vegetate or something or fight with your spouse. <laughs> One or the other. When you come home or both at the same time, Netflix and no chill. But if you come home after a day of work and you find that you're absolutely drained and stressed and frazzled and angry, chances are some attachment has crept into that. You've started to see that work as being part of who you think you are. And therefore, most of that energy, which, you know, would have been available to you at the end of the day is not because it got spent in all the kind of postulation of what could go wrong, the fear of those uh, unintended consequences that you don't want to have happen, you know, the reminiscence and the regret of things that did happen that you, you wish didn't happen, and all of that. All the energy that you invest in that work is largely due to your attachment to it, thinking that it's your work and that the world needs you, and that if you don't do that work, the world will therefore suffer as a consequence. <laughs> And therefore, you better do it well because everyone's depending on you. See, this type of mentality is what makes the work very difficult. Now, compare that to work that you're doing just because. Maybe you still do it as wholeheartedly as before, except there's not that same level of attachment. As if you're working on someone else's painting or ghostwriting a novel or raising someone else's kids. I think we made a joke on Friday about how grandparents are much more able to love kids than parents are able to love kids because the degree of attachment is much less in grandparents than with parents. <laughs> but take, for instance, the person who does art for fun, chances are their art might be at a much higher quality. But the moment they go pro, it's often a noted consequence. Their art sometimes diminishes in value. Why? Because they no longer have that free-spirited kind of risk-taking attitude they had before it all got so serious, before it became a career. And then when it became a career and there were actual stakes involved, they got caught up in, in thinking about those stakes, in fearing those stakes. And as a result, what happened? Their art suffered, did it not? And this is true for our lives too. Any work that we can do without attachment, there will be a vibration there of like easefulness, of fluidity, of flow, of peace. And this is why hobbies can sometimes be so energizing because there aren't real stakes to them. You can just play tennis recreationally on Sundays and feel happy. But it, it'd be a wholly different thing if you were in the Olympic team, <laughs> right? So notice the difference here between work that drains you and work that energizes you is just in the degree of attachment you have to that thing. In fact, I would even say work that you do wholeheartedly without attachment is no longer called work. What's a better word for it? Something that you do with, with all your heart, with a lot of focus, yet you don't care what happens play. And by the way, in Thanksgiving, some play happens, right? But it's not play. It's war. I've seen board games turn into screaming matches. I've seen, uh, you know, like football games or soccer games. I'm using soccer. See, I've learned. I don't say football anymore to you Americans. I say soccer, like Scrabble, Monopoly, like all these innocent games that, that should be games no longer are games because there's at least one person who's very, very upset about losing and very, very invested in winning. <laughs> I'm just exaggerating a little bit. So I hope you don't mind, but you know how it is to play games with those people who really believe that winning Scrabble will mean something to the way others look at them will mean something to the way they look at themselves <laughs> as if it says something about who you are, whether you win or lose Scrabble. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Thank you. So sometimes I'm like worried about cultural barriers. I'm like, this is what I saw, but this could just be those niche instances. I don't know how general it is this situation, but from what I've, what I've understood, 
for all of us. And in my own experience, family is difficult. Now notice the comparison between work that drains you and games or, or sport or play that energizes you is attachment. Ideally, you're your most playful when, you're, you're, when you are your least attached. When you simply don't care the outcome, that's when the means become way more valuable in the ends. Heck, the means themselves are the ends. And they're just, it's just fun to do. Okay, here's the Lord of the Rings reference. Are you ready? Kat made a funny joke. There's a scam account going around, which I think is so funny. If, by the way, you ever get a message from me and the opening message is grand rising, block immediately. Okay, you're not going to hear any new age sounding terms from me except for vibe, energy, kundalini, and shakti. I feel like these are the only, this mother willing are the only new age terms that I think I'm going to be using in my career. But if you hear grand rising or any other such (laughs) new age trend, word be careful and secondly i will never read your tarot cards i will never do astrology birth readings for you because i just don't know how you know there is a program out there on tarot because i studied for some time and emily actually a long time ago we had that workshop on tarot but see i'm far more interested in that in that workshop teaching you how to read your own cards because to me if anybody wants to approach they should they should learn and and read their own cards but i myself will not charge you 200 dollars to read your cards okay (laughs) so i'm sorry that happened i know a lot of you got messages um, which started with Grand Rising. And oh, and I also hopefully will never claim to speak on behalf of your ancestors. That's between you and them, sister. Okay, it's got nothing to do with me. <laughs> you talk to your ancestors. And I also will never claim that some vague spiritual force called spirit moved me to hustle you out of your money on Instagram DMs. <laughs> anyway, so that happened. <laughs> and um... <laughs> wait. Um, the funny thing is, Kat then reached out and said, I wasn't fooled because there was no Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> so here comes the Lord of the Rings reference. You see, the elves in Lord of the Rings, the reason they're like the good guys in J.R. Tolkien's universe. Oh, and by the way, this isn't to say that I don't see value in like terror readings and all that stuff. There, there, there obviously is. It's just I don't do that. That's not what I do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not our domain. Okay. So there, there are people who are better at that. So go there, not here. Okay. So. Um, the elves in Lord of the Rings in Tolkien's universe, especially like in the Silmarillion, Silmarillion, that book, the prequel. So you'll see the thing that makes elves the good guys, like the holy noble people, is that they can make without being attached to the fruits of their actions. So they just craft for the sake of crafting. They love beauty and they don't see beauty in things. Silmarillion, uh, yes, Silmarillion, thank you. Silmarillion, Silmarillion, Simarillion. Okay, good. <laughs> a gajillion sims in a room is a Simarillion. Okay, anyway. So, um, <laughs> so the elves, they love beauty, but they love crafting for its own sake. So they don't see beauty as like confined to any one object, you know? <laughs> so they'll just make for the sake of making and they give, they give it all away. Like Anthony Kiedis, here's a rock and roll reference, you know, give it all away. So he, the elves then are good because of that. Now, Sauron and Melkor and and the evil people of Lord of the Rings, what makes them evil is that they also love beauty, but they want to possess it. That's it. Melkor himself is like a Valar, right? He's like a god. And he's like that fallen angel who, like his brethren, is actually interested in the highest, noblest of things. Like Lucifer is not lustful. Lucifer is not greedy. And you can't really even say Lucifer is prideful. I mean, when you look at the Christian writings on demonology, especially with regards to the fall, and I would I would point you to St. Augustine here. Um, no, sorry, St. Anselm. I point you to St. Anselm in his three dialogues. You'll see in all the kind of Catholic debates regarding 
the devil, the reason he fell is not because of pride, not because of lust, not because of greed. It's because of the malum, which is a Latin word that could mean anything really. It could be interpreted in any way. But the malum, as at least Anselm means it, is, and Kant, I think, to some degree, would also mean it this way. The malum is that which you will that you ought not will, is that which ought not be willed at that time. That's the only difference. The difference is that the, the, the bad guy, Satan, he's doing something that he ought not do. He's doing the malum. And the malum, at least in Tolkien's world, is to try to possess beauty for oneself. If beauty is there and it's to, share, to be shared with everybody, then you're an elf. You're a good person. But if you're trying to possess the beauty, you still love beauty. It's just that you're trying to make it yours. You're trying to own sunsets, so to speak. And arguably, that's what demoniac behavior is. It's me and mine. That's why typically the malum is, I think, translated to pride. It's not lust that gets Satan. It's not greed. It's pride. But it's not even really pride. It's me and mindness. You know, notice me and mindness. Isn't that far subtler than pride? Pride has this connotation of like, I'm the shit. Everyone should respect me because I'm the best at what I do. You guys don't know anything and I'm the best. That's pride, right? But I could still say, I'm such a loser. I don't know anything. And I would still have that me and mindness, the malum, because I still identify with something as mine, you see. So the reason work becomes a drag is if, that's, if, if there is in that working a me and mindness. If, you be, if you're Sauron about it, if you're Melkor about it, it's not going to be so, Morgoth, I mean, it's not going to be fun. But if you could just do it like an elf, just doing it for the sake of doing it, then it'll be nice then the work will be play. So the difference in how you feel after a day of work or a day of play is always going to be in the degree of attachment you felt to that thing. Okay, enough said. This is like the main point in our diagnosis because um, that's the difference between being with friends and being with family, the degree of me and mindness. When I'm with my friends, I do feel like they're my friends, but not as much as my mother is my mother or my father is my father or my child is my child or my childhood for my brother or my sister is my brother or sister. This is probably why at the heart of things, your relationships with your family are much more complicated, much more difficult because you still think they're your family. You still think your parents are your parents, your children are your children. And mark my words, if you think your kids are your kids, you will fuck them up. Anybody, anybody here, I think can testify to that. Your worst parenting is when you are attached to the outcome in your child. So obviously every parent's greatest fear is not death. It's that their kid will become drug addicts or end up in prison or become murderers or something, right? So I've been talking to a lot of moms in my life and we're trying to articulate what's the worst fear. And it's not actually death. I think it's child goes to jail, child commits crime, child does drugs and becomes like a washed out, you know, strung out heroin addict in a bombed out building in Lower East Side, New York, or a child becomes a monk or a nun. So I think these are the four, <laughs> four greatest fears <laughs> parents can have about their children. But those fears are only there because to a large extent, a mother and a father can't help but feel, and naturally so, this is valuable for survival, they can't help but feel that the children are an extension of them. So if the child gets called in by the principal, the mom herself feels threatened by that, as if she herself is being called in by the principal, since her kid is obviously a reflection of her, right? She's worried about what the neighbors will think and what other people are going to say about her kid, because deep down inside, maybe that's a fear of what they're saying about her as a parent, or, or not even going that far. There's just a natural sense that my personality, my individuality is externalized to my kid. You know? So it's very difficult for parents, much harder for parents and their kids, arguably. And that's why the tension arises. So I think that's a good idea. So there are people, right? Thank you. Whose entire personality is a reaction to their parents. 
So like their parents might be meat eaters and they might be vegans or vegetarians, not because they care about animals, maybe some of it, and not so much because of spiritual purity, maybe some of it, but deep down inside, maybe because of the psychological need to articulate an identity outside of the parents that you resent. So I have seen Thanksgiving dinners where the raw foods vegan will actually fight with the parents about what's served at dinner. And it will turn into your stomach is a graveyard. You don't respect your body. You're going to get sick like that. You know, so a lot of the times diet is so important in spiritual life because in some ways diet is an act of rebellion to American culture, i.e. your mother and father, your guardian, right? Not only that, deciding to opt out of the religious institution you are in and then dive really, really, really deep to a, a foreign religious institution might sometimes, in some cases, be another act of rebellion. I am not a Catholic because the parents I hate are Catholics or not to say hate, but resent are Catholics. So I will not engage with Catholicism in any way. I will deny that there's any beauty in it. There's tremendous beauty. Aquinas and Anselm and Augustine and the, the praying the rosary, you know, like talk to Anjali for a little while and you'll see like Catholicism is like, like it's the shit, you know, Christianity is like, but they won't be able to enjoy any of that. Or some people won't be able to enjoy the depth of Judaism with its Kabbalah and its deep, deep, profound, rational, logical mysticism like Gematria and all that. They won't be able to enjoy that. Or some people won't be able to touch the Quran and interact with Sufi poets and the deep mysteries of the Quran because their parents were Jewish, Christian, Muslim. So they will plunge into Buddhism and Hinduism as a way to articulate the identity against their parents and against those institutions which they think their parents represent. Isn't that sad? But, but notice, the point here is that a person might come to spiritual life in some degree, I'm not saying entirely, some cases I've seen entirely, but in some degree because um, it's seen as a way to kind of rebel against the parents. And that becomes an issue at Thanksgiving dinner. You just don't, you, you know, you go and you try to talk about Vedanta and they just don't get it. And then you get upset because they might in some ways demean your practices. Like, oh, what is this? You're being involved in some weird stuff. And, and Indian families know, right? When you get too involved, they're worried about this Kundalini stuff. They're like, what if the Kundalini Shakti awakens? You'll go crazy. We have an uncle who became a celibate because he was practicing spirituality and now he ignores his wife and he spends his time in the cave worshiping Kali. That's going to happen to you. Please don't worship too much. So <laughs> I think Indian households, you know exactly like that level of superstition that I think only Indians can have, <laughs> right? <laughs> that deep, deep cultural superstition. And Emily is saying, I've seen a young person. Yeah, yeah. Yell at their mom. You have to be present, mom. Be here now, mom. Oh! <laughs> Throw the Eckhart Tolle book. <laughs> Thick not Hans, be peaceful. Be peaceful, Ma. <laughs> but anyway, I think all of this is to say, when you put this all together, you can see that like one way that parents, I think, harm their children is by attaching a lot of me and mindness to parenting. So we won't go into it because we had an entire lecture about it. Your kids are not your kids, where we gave like levels and levels of analysis as to why you are not the body and therefore the fruit of thy womb is not yours, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, but your children are not your children insofar as you are not the body. So in that lecture, we proved that you're no more the body than you're the car that you saw drive by you on the street. If we prove that, then we also prove that the body created a body and that body is also not your, your child. Your child is beyond that body, beyond that mind. And they are largely in God's hands. So if we can understand this, if we know that our parents are not our parents, but they belong to God, that our kids are not our kids, that they belong to God, then actually we'll be better children, better parents, as we explained in that lecture. But anyway, I think this is enough said for this lecture to diagnose why there's tension in family units, largely because of this me and minus 
this I-ness. If that wasn't there, if you could see your parents as friends or your children as friends, things would change a lot. Right. Good. Thank you, Amanda. Yeah, I think, Amanda, thank you for the testimony because I think it really does help. Like Khalil Gibran has that beautiful poem about parenting that appears in his The Prophet where he talks about kids as an arrow released from the quiver. You know? Okay. I actually do know someone whose grandmother or auntie or something gifted that poem to her parents and her parents got pissed because the very sentiment that she did not belong to them as implied by that poem was not acceptable to them. <laughs> thought it was cute. Okay, so, um, so much for why that happens. Now let's talk about what to do about it. Here is one way to approach Thanksgiving dinner that hopefully will take the sting out of when parents do. Because it, it's one thing to say, okay, start seeing your parents as friends, start seeing your children as friends, see them as belonging to God, not belonging to you. It's one thing to say that, and I think to actually feel like that's true. Obviously, that's not the goal here. When you do go to Thanksgiving dinner, the conditioning of seeing your parents as your parents and your children as your children will obviously take over in most cases. So you're probably not going to be able to use the teaching that kids belong to God, parents belong to God. You know, that, that would be wonderful if you could. But insofar as you cannot, here's the rest of the lecture, right? So thus far, I think this is the most valuable suggestion. Stop seeing your kids as your kids. Stop seeing your parents as your parents and then go and be with them and then serve them. That will change everything. Take the attachment out of all of it. Realize that you're not that important. That would be powerful. And better yet, if you could not only see these kids and parents as belonging to God, if you're a devotional of nature, but even deeper than that, you could see them as God themselves. What does God need from you? So your child is baby Gopala. Baby Gopala is there giving you the opportunity to feed him, not because he needs it, but because you need it. So in other words, the child is there for you to become a better mom, not for him or her or them. So when you can kind of karma yoga, Swami Vivekananda, karma yoga your way into a good Thanksgiving dinner. But that aside, let's do some jnana yoga now. Kind of jnana yoga approach is this. You don't have to worry about Thanksgiving dinner. You don't have to be stressed about it. And when it's happening, nothing should get your goat because it's not really happening. <laughs> there is no Thanksgiving dinner. Never was, never will be. It's as immaterial and insubstantial as a dream. <laughs> so now let's use the Mandukya Upanishad. Why, why is this teaching important? Arguably, the essence of forgiveness is forbearance. That's the next idea I really hope to get across. The essence of forgiveness is forbearance. In order not to be upset, by parents, siblings, etc., we must learn to forgive them for the way that they are. So like Emily was saying, that child who says, be here now, ma, or be present, mom, you know, is not someone who can accept that a mom just maybe isn't conforming to her idea of being present, right? So your parents might not be as conscious, to use a new age term, as you want them to be. They might eat foods that you don't agree people should be eating. They might do activities that you don't believe people should be doing. They might smoke cigarettes. And you, of course, as a spiritual person who recognize the body is a temple, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I'm making fun of a particular archetype. I hope you know that kind of spiritual person who articulates spirituality as an entirely physical pursuit and thereby judges others for not meeting their same standards of physical purity and calls them unspiritual because, et cetera. Swamiji ate bacon and smoked cigarettes like that, right? <laughs> These people would be horrified to find <laughs> that the greatest spiritual people in the world, like the Buddhist masters, weren't probably, just ate whatever, because it's not about the body, right? Anyway, actually it's fine. Anyway, so continuing then. So insofar as 
other people might not meet our standards of spirituality, whatever they might be. Whether they might be physical, they don't conform to ideas of physical purity. Maybe they don't conform to ideas of like being present or being here now or being compassionate. They're just doing their own thing. And insofar as that rubs you the wrong way, you'll need to forgive. You'll need to allow them to be that. But how do you forgive? It's actually a very tall order to just forgive people. I'm going to make the point here now that to forgive is to forbear. To really forgive someone presupposes that you can forbear what it is that they've done, meaning you cannot be affected by what someone does to you, then you can forgive them. It's easy to forgive someone when there's no actual harm to you. Like they say in America, no harm, no foul, right? That's kind of the point I'm making. So Sri Ramakrishna, he has this beautiful parable that appears in the Katamrita, the gospel of that buffalo. So the buffalo has horns, these really big horns. And one day a mosquito landed on the tip of the horn. And the mosquito is a bit of a cheeky mosquito, you know, after living on the horn for several years, he brought his wife to also live on the horn. Then he brought his children to live on the horn. Then he brought his in-laws and his relatives and all manner of mosquitoes came to live on the horn. And now there was a veritable town of mosquitoes on the horn of this buffalo, all because this mosquito had been taking, you know, his taking advantage of, of his accommodation. One day, Maybe because this mosquito started practicing japa or got initiated or something, he became very like remorseful. He, he looked back on his actions and he felt like that was wrong. It was wrong to not ask permission. It was wrong to bring my whole family to just live here at the expense of this poor buffalo who for his whole life has been forced to carry me and my wife and my children and my relatives. He's been forced to carry us around for years and years and years. I have to apologize. So this mosquito, he comes and he prostrates before the buffalo. And he says, Buffalo, I've done a horrible thing. At first, it was just me. And I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong for me to come and sit on your horn and expect to be carried all over the savannah. But I didn't stop there, Mr. Buffalo. Then I brought my wife. And then both of us enjoyed your horn. And then the kids came. And then I brought my in-laws and my relatives. And I just, I, I'm so sorry, Mr. Buffalo. Emily, how am I doing? Emily's the resident professional actor here. So... <laughs> Was that, was that my, 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 my Oscar bit? No, anyway, so then, you know, he's, he's doing all these things. He was saying, I'm so, sorry, I'm so sorry. Then, you know, the buffalo, you know what the buffalo said? Who are you? <laughs> right? Buffalo doesn't give a damn. Buffalo didn't even notice that was happening there. Yeah. <laughs> so the buffalo, he didn't feel the offense. He didn't feel the slight. It was nothing to him. He didn't have to set up boundaries. And I'm saying that's not, not something you should do. You should definitely do that. But there's actually a way to be in this world where no boundaries are necessary because no harm is possible. No harm can come to you at all, you know? Um, and that's where the buffalo was in that interaction. He like saw the mosquito and he was like, who are you? He could forgive the mosquito easily because there was no harm to him, you know? There's no harm to him at all. So this teaching from the Mandukya will hopefully convey that invulnerability to you. Once you have that invulnerability, then it'll be easy to forgive because automatically you can forbear. And this is the invulnerability. You, you gain it. Forbearance means like endurance, not being harmed by something. Like say someone does something, you don't take offense or it doesn't bother you. You're able to just kind of like deal, just deal with things, you know, forbearance right? Like for instance, sometimes like it's, if, if I'm ill or something, if this body is ill, they'll say, don't, don't teach class or something. But I think 
it, it it's not a problem. Like people say, thank you for your time. You came anyway, even if you will. I said, no, you can only thank me if indeed it cost me something to be here. But it's forbearance. The idea of forbearance, like it doesn't bother you to do something, though other people might think it does because of different levels of forbearance. But how do you get forbearance in times of illness? To recognize you're not the body. How do you get forbearance in times of mental disturbance? To recognize you're not the mind. Now, there are many ways to do this. In Vedanta, there are all sorts of vivekas, they're called techniques for discernment. And we've explored several of them together in this space. So in closing this lecture, I just want to offer you maybe the most powerful one, just very briefly. We had a whole lecture on this called, Are You Dreaming Right Now? And I just want to give you the essence of that lecture. And it's this. There are, in your life, three modes of being. One of them is called waking. And that's presumably what we're in now. You know, you're a, a certain person in the waking world. You have your waking life with its waking people. And you're aware of the various characters, your friends, your family, you have ambitions, you have a past. All of this is true in the waking life. So you are the pramata with five organs of action, with five organs of perception, with five pranas, and with the four constituents of the mind, ego, memory, intellect, mind. Okay? So I'm just, I'm very, very quickly moving through the teaching of verse three of the Mandukya Upanishad. So you're this, it's called Vishva, this knower, this waking knower. And the world around you, composed of the five elements of the celestial bodies of the heavens is called the Vaishvanara, which literally in Sanskrit means common to all men or common to all people. So waking life then is you, the knower, the waking self, interacting with a waking world or the known world. And that's all true while you're awake. But then you go to sleep and a dream appears. Now in the dream, you're no longer the person you were in waking. Maybe some things are reminiscent of waking, but in many cases, you're a wholly different person. You're like a particular individual, the dream person with five motor organs, with five organs of perception, with five pranas, with four constituents, mind, intellect, memory, ego. So you're a complete person, a complete knower in the dream. And not only that, the dream world is a complete world. As long as you're in the dream, there's like the five dream elements. There's a dream sun, a dream moon, a dream sky. There's everything that would be there in waking reproduced in dream. And what's more harrowing is that while in the dream, as far as you know, barring any lucid dreaming, the dream reality is as real as the waking reality while you're in it. You see, so the dream is the waking reality of the dreaming self. And that means this waking reality is no more real than a dream. And if a dream is not real, then this waking reality is like a dream, not also not, not real. Because while I'm in it, I know that it's not the totality of my experience, only one third of my experience. The other third is dreaming and the other third is deep sleep where I'm unconscious of any waking or dreaming realities. There's no dreaming knower or waking knower. There's an absence of knowers and yet I'm there. Tum hi such. Yes, <laughs> Janaka Raja. <laughs> you are the reality of these three. So given that I'm there in my waking life, I'm there in my dreaming life, I am there in my deep sleep. I must be none of these or all of these. And for me to be none of these, and also for me to be all of these, I must be some fourth entity, some fourth thing, something quite apart from waking, quite apart from dreaming, quite apart from deep sleep, yet wholly present in all three. That's been called by the Mandukya in verse seven as Turiya, which is um, this witness, this consciousness, this Atman that we sometimes talk about. So no self of, of, of Buddhism. So this being that you truly are, which should flash into insight when you consider these three um, states of being, this being is not confined to the waking life. 
It's not confined to the dreaming life and it's not confined to the seed state called deep sleep because it fluidly moves through all three. And because all three are subject to change and permutation and coming and going, you can rest in that spaciousness beyond all three, knowing with full certainty, this too shall pass. Okay, so one thing I wanted to quickly do, I know I'm coming up one time, is offer you 10 reasons for why you might say dream is different from waking and prove that all 10 don't hold up. So much of this is from um, the appendix to Swami Nikhilanandaji's translation of the Mandukya Upanishad, which is his volume two in the four volume set of the Upanishads. But I'm just going to read to you now 10 reasons for why most people say, but no, 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 no. Waking is more real than dreaming. It must be. Waking must be more real than dreaming. Waking is actually real. Dreaming is a dream. Waking is real. Uh, dreaming and deep sleep, those are less real. Waking is my main reality, right? Most of us have that feeling. That's why we take our waking self very seriously. So here are 10 reasons for why you might distinguish waking and dreaming and why those reasons don't actually hold up. Much of this was discussed in more detail in that lecture, Are You Dreaming Right Now? So I'm just going to give you a kind of Cliff Notes version. The first, when I'm awake, I can distinguish between real and unreal. So when I'm awake, I say this waking wake, waking wake, this waking world is real and the dreaming dream is unreal. So my ability to distinguish between real and unreal is unique to the waking state, not to the dreaming state. Ah, but not so. Even in the dreaming state, you're able to distinguish something as unreal, like in the case of dreaming and illusion. You might in the dream be aware that there's an illusion there. You might in the dream have woken up from a previous dream and dismissed it as a dream. So even in the dream, you have this ability to distinguish real from unreal. The only difference is that your standard is now the reality of the dream, not the reality of the waking. So the ability to distinguish between real and unreal is not unique to waking. It's a feature that also exists in dream, albeit by the standard of dream reality. Secondly, uh, they say dreams don't contain sense experiences. But when I'm awake, I can taste, I can smell, I can hear. Dreams are all in the mind. They're all internal. Whereas this is external. This is in the senses. This is in the body. This is stula, right? It's physical. Ah, but isn't that also true while you're in the dream? You're only saying that now because you're awake. But in the dream, you can taste food. You can hear sounds. You see people. You can touch things. Many people have sensed in the dream with their five senses, albeit dream senses, albeit dream objects of senses. But in the dream, they're as sensory as sensory gets. So again, this too is not a good distinction for waking and dream. Thirdly, they say the dream world is private. Okay, the dream just happened to me. And barring that one weird time that Emily and I had, for most of us, uh, if we say the dream is private, uh, that's not true. Because while we're in the dream, there are other people and there does feel like there's a public world. So you can be like embarrassed in your dream. You don't actually feel like the other people in the dream are you while you're dreaming. You feel like there are actually other people and that you're in public spaces. So again, there's no reason to say that the dream is different from waking if indeed your only criteria is private and public. Dreams are as public as the waking world. Okay, fourthly, uh, waking cognitions are more enduring. So for instance, when you wake up, you wake up to the same bed, to the same people, in the same body, to the same life. So dreams, they're not as enduring. You dream different dreams every night, right? So this, this is, I think, the main difference that people will cite. Waking is enduring. Ah, but you could have dreamed that. So you could have had a very enduring dream as well. How do you know this all isn't just one long, enduring dream? You see, even within dreams, things can endure relative to the dreams of those dreams. So even if you say all of this is enduring, that is still subject to the possibility that you're just dreaming that. Fifth, dream objects are means to dream ends as well. So if I'm thirsty in the world and I drink water, then 
The same is true in my dream. If I'm thirsty in the dream, I drink water, I'll also have my thirst quenched. It's just that those causal relations are a bit weirder, right? So if in waking life, as Westerfer is demonstrating, I'm thirsty and I drink, I know in some, some yeah, the, ah, he says, which is the secret beach mantra of the Coca-Cola company. Ah, the Vyapini mantra. <laughs> the 16th vowel of the Sanskrit alphabet. Ah, <laughs> anyway, so um, it's, it's also, there's like a kind of logic in dreams. We deny it. We say dream logic is weird, but no, not while I'm in the dream. They're like dream means that do meet dream ends. And sixthly, even if all of this is queer and fantastic and like surrealistic, the dreamer considers it all perfectly normal. And who's to say this waking world is very coherent either, right? Any visit to a quantum physics department will show you that this world is just as surrealistic as the dream one. Uh, seventh, um, from, from the dream, the waking world can be refuted as unreal. You know, so while you're in the dream, you can say this is what's real. Uh, because the dream is the waking state of the dreamer. And, and one way to do this is to think into your memories. So if you feel your memories, you can actually feel a kind of dreaminess to them. Just like remembering last night's dream, remembering last year's Thanksgiving dinner is just as immaterial and illusory. So your very memories in this waking world are as subject to illusoriness as dreams are. And, uh, you know, okay, like I think I'll stop there. There are a few more, but in the interest of time, I think that's enough to say that Although you try to find distinctions between waking and dream, one by one, we can scrub them out. One by one, we can prove that these aren't actually kosher distinctions. And, you know, the point of all of this is so you end up feeling at the end of this discussion, like, oh my God, there is actually no difference between waking and dreaming. And that allows you to interact with your reality in a very unique way. You can look at it all and say, you know, now I'm lucidly dreaming. Now I'm aware that this reality, which I took to be so real, is, is not as real as I might previously have thought it was. And that helps you relax. Gives you the sense of like, all this will be gone tonight anyway. While it's here, I expect it to be surrealistic. I expect it not to make any sense. I expect not to get any credit for doing all of the work in the kitchen, stuffing the turkey. I expect someone else to get the credit for that because there's no logic to this world. There's no fairness or justice insofar as like, there is a surrealistic element to it. Things don't always work out the way I expect them to. Why should I expect them to work out any which way? It's a dream after all. It all just comes and it goes. You know, that feeling, that feeling that this is a dream gives you a sense of forbearance because whatever is happening is only happening to your dream self and that's only legal tenor for one third of your experience as a conscious being. The other two thirds present to you a wholly different reality. So why get caught up in just this one? You see how it gives you a little bit of distance to realize that this world is nowhere, not necessarily more real than dreaming? You know, that's a wonderful kind of way to feel calm, relaxed, and tranquil. It gives you a forbearance knowing this is all a dream. But, and I think this is deeper, deeper than knowing that this is all a dream is to remember that you and all the people in your dream are actually all still you, you know? So maybe, maybe this is a good time to, to sketch this. I discovered the whiteboard, so I'm very excited about it. Okay, so say this is you, right? This is like the dream you. And these are like, Oh my God, what? And then these are like dream other people. So these are actual other people in your dream. They feel like other people. So it's like your dream mom and your dream sister and all that. So this is dream you. Let's call this like dream you, D-Y. 
Okay. And these are like your dream family and, and all of them feel real to you outside of your dream. However, this whole dream, all of this is all occurring within the mind of this waking you. So this, I think, is a very harrowing point that there is like a waking fella lying down in bed. And let's just call this the wake. Oh, my God. Let's call this over here waking you. Okay. Now, this waking you is actually a different person than this dreaming you. So this dreaming you is a figment of the waking you's imagination. And so too with all these other supposedly other people in the dream. So you're not actually even you. You are as much a figment of the dream as other people are. So all of it is in you. So that means this person right here, this person is also you. And this person is also you. As much as this person is also you. You are none of them and you are all of them because the waking you is actually the reality of this dream. So this waking you projects into existence a fictional you and a fictional other people. They're all of them in actuality, you. They're all just people in your own mind. So a nice story here is one day, a pundit was very sad. He was like sitting sad-faced and his student asked him, Guruji, why are you so sad? He said, look, I'm the greatest pundit in the land. I have beaten everyone in debate. No one can rival my intellect. But you know, last night in my dream, someone bested me. Someone came, challenged me to a debate, and my arguments were powerless against them. They refuted every single one, and I was sorely defeated and sorely humiliated. That's why I'm sad now. And the disciple said, but Gurudev, everyone in your dream is you. So the person who beat you was also you. So you beat you, meaning you're a great pundit. You're still undefeated. And the pundit immediately got happy. And he said, oh, you're right. You're right. I just beat myself in my dream. I was that other guy too, right? So that realization that everyone in your dream is you um, is very important because when you're at Thanksgiving dinner, uh, this is very important for this whole thing not to turn into solipsism. Because if you say, okay, I, Nish, am real and all you other people are a dream. No, 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 no. That's not what Vedanta is saying. Be careful. What Vedanta is saying is all of you and me were all unreal. And the reality of all of this is a shared individuality that shines forth in all of your eyes. So to say, I'm real and you're all a dream, that's a misunderstanding. To say, I'm not real, and therefore I'm able to find that reality which shines forth in all of your eyes as equally as in mine, that's Vedanta. That's the Mandukya Upanishad, the Kevala Advaita of Gaudapada. And if you can do this, then what will happen is when you see other people in this dream called Thanksgiving, you'll recognize that they are not actually other people. They're you. They're all just figments of your own and not your individual imagination, but Brahman's imagination, God's imagination. So in one sense, you could say these, these, all these people and me too are all figments in the dream of God. And that helps you love them. It helps you love them in the Gyani sense because you know that they are you. It helps you love them in the Bhakta sense because you feel like they're all figments of God's imagination. So how you feel about them is really ultimately how you feel about God. So from the Gyani point of view, you could say, what I see in others is only there in me, literally. So if you're seeing some behavior you don't like at the dinner table, that should make you think about you, not about the other person. Because the other person is nothing but you. If someone's behaving in a way you don't like, you have to take a closer look at yourself. But this, by the way, is not just some Twitter aphorism telling you to do it. This is the metaphysical reason for why you should see other people as reflections of yourself. You know, this is not a cultural point. This is not an ethical point. This is a metaphysical point. 
Meaning, I'm saying something now, according to the Mandukya, about reality itself. Not about the way you should behave, but the way you can align your behavior to what is already, even now, the reality of things. Other people are you as much as you are you, or nobody is you and you yourself aren't you, and God alone shines forth in all of these people. Therefore, how you treat them is how you treat God. And how they treat you is how God is actually treating you at that time. Okay, it doesn't mean you don't set up boundaries, and I'm getting there, but at least this will change the way that you feel about them. You know it's not a person who is different and other than you. And therefore your defensiveness might diminish a whole bit, if a whole lot rather, if you can feel this. So you get love. Seeing all of this as a dream doesn't just give you forbearance and peace. It also gives you love and intimacy, the ability to see others as literally you. Okay, now say they are stepping all over your toes and, and being a way that they, they shouldn't be. Now, knowing that they're God, knowing that they're you, doesn't change that you do set up boundaries. Oh, hello, dear Red is here. I'm happy, long time no see. Namaskar, namaskar. So say you do know that they are you, right? But that doesn't mean that you allow them to do whatever it is that it's not okay for them to do. So Shravakusha often gave the example of the tiger god. He, he didn't deny the tiger was god, but he kept saying, don't go hug it. Just because the tiger is god doesn't mean you should go hug it. You'll get eaten. You know? And in other places, Shravakusha would say, the thing about god is that he's, he, she, she, it, seems to have manifested such variety. Among people, there are cheats and thieves and robbers and scoundrels. And there are also good, noble people. Uh, according to Sri Ramakrishna, we can see all throughout the gospel, this idea of like manifestation of Shakti. It's a very tantric idea that we're all one, but Shakti, that oneness, manifests in different degrees in different people. So the person in whom God is manifested very little might be a rogue, might be a scoundrel. Not to say God isn't manifesting as that person. It's just, it's a dimmer manifestation, like a lamp. Whereas that great sage who uplifts and ennobles is still God, just a greater manifestation of God, like the sun. Now the comparison is between sun and torch. Light is light. The difference is just in degree, not in type or kind. So it's true. There are certain people just because they're God doesn't mean they're not going to harm you. So knowing that you can both know that they're God and keep some distance. So in other words, you're doing what needs to be done to protect yourself, but never is there any rancor about it. Never is there any personal kind of feelings about it. No vendettas, no sense of being a victim. See, you can move through your life and set up boundaries without ever feeling like you're a victim. Always by keeping in mind that other people are literally you, so why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? You know, it's no one to blame but me. Swami Vivekananda even has a poem, no one else to blame but me. So all these people are just you, right? So the only reason you're seeing them is because there must be something in you that's manifesting that. Dare I use a new age term after just making fun of the grand rising people. Oh my God, father, I know not what I do. So then um, you can still set up the boundaries and feel chill about it. Because as Sri Ramakrishna said, all these different people have different attitudes. Some are like the tigers. So Shanti Deva in his Bodhicharya uh, Vatara, right? Bodhicharya Vatara, the guide on the Bodhisattva's way of life. He actually says in that book, a very beautiful piece of advice. Fire's nature is to burn. So you don't get upset at fire for burning. It's the nature of fire to burn. It might just be the nature of your dad to like be a bitch. But that doesn't mean you should be upset about it. It's the nature of fire to burn. It's the nature of your dad sometimes to be a misogynic ass, mis misogynistic asshole. It might be the nature of your mom to like nag and be upset. It might be the nature of your guardian to like be 
overly critical of you. It might be the nature of your brother and sister to like dominate the conversation and steal all your blame. Just as you wouldn't be upset with fire for burning, so too should you not be upset with the tiger for eating meat, with the poisonous plant for poisoning. You don't shake your fist at the nightshade and say, how dare you do that? You just accept that the property of nightshade is to poison some suckers. And you can chill knowing that. You should feel that way about your family and about the people in your life. You should know that it's just their nature. It's not your business to fix. They are you. They are God. It's just that God manifested that way as that person for her own Leela, for whatever she finds fun. She's enjoying it. You don't have to enjoy it also. You can stay away from it, but you don't have to do anything about it. Just as you respect fire as fire, you can respect dad as 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 as, as a bitch. You know that that's possible. <laughs> and you know the thing is, I'm 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 exceptionally lucky because my my parents are like sages. They're so calm and sweet. They're like vegetarian yogis who meditate, and so I I got lucky in that my parents, you know, aren't difficult. But I have met in my life and my career as an educator here in LA, some very difficult parents. <laughs> and I think it's especially important in those cases to know that fire is fire. So these people are just like that. That's their nature. So chill. That's the way that they are. And there's nothing you need to do about it and nothing they need to do about it. Nothing they might be able to do about it either. Fire can't stop being fire. You can't like take it to like, I don't know, a Tony Robinson course. And then at the end of that, the fire decides not to burn shit. No, it's not like you can give fire, be here now by Ram Das or tell the fire to attend some like Vipassana retreat. Like there's no way you can fix the fire. That's its nature. And you might've found that to be the case with your family. You might actually force them to read a book. They finish it and there's still fire at the end of it. You know, so that's an important point. This is the nature of certain people. Okay, so now we know all of this, right? Having understood that we don't have to be mad at people any more than we should be mad at an empty boat bumping us. We don't have to be personally offended or take anything personally. Now that we know that all of this is a dream so we can relax and just enjoy the surrealistic elements of it. And most importantly, now that we know that our kids are our kids and our parents are our parents. Now that we know all of this, I hope this will change your experience of Thanksgiving dinner. Even if it doesn't, here's the even if, even if it doesn't and you do get triggered, you do get angry and you do feel grief good because that's the bowl of blood as we discussed in the bowl of blood lecture all sensation is just raw immediate energy you know like all experience <laughs> yeah exactly exactly that you know <laughs> you just got it's not thirsty <laughs> and you have to be hungry right for spiritual knowledge but you can't just tell someone be hungry people have to come to it on their own that's why you can't you know, I was just reading in the gospel today, Sri Ramakrishna is like telling someone about true spirituality is not about longevity in the body or making money. And then as he makes these points, these guys, these tantrikas get up and leave the room. And Sri Ramakrishna says, well, you can't teach a robber religion. And then everyone laughs. <laughs> you gotta, anyway. So even if it doesn't work, even if all of these ways of looking at Thanksgiving dinner don't actually make for more spaciousness and calmness, then that's good because you can still enjoy the grief of things. You can still enjoy the anger of things. As per our lecture, Mother Kali's bowl of blood turning suffering into joy or ecstasy, I forget what it was called. If an emotion arises in you, you're able now, as a result of your practice, to be with that emotion, to enter into it as a raw, immediate, energetic experience. And then 
you can meditate on the intensity of that. And that will be a powerful way to meditate. You'll notice that the more you get to do this, the less emotions like grief and anger and, and hatred, the less they feel bad. They just feel vital. They're enlivening. They get transmuted very quickly into ecstasy. If you can just be with them without any labels or without any stories. So worst case scenario, if all of this fails, this is your backup plan. Just be with the grief, be with the anger. That's the gift of Thanksgiving. You could say, oh, I'm so excited to go and see my family because I get to drink heartily from the bowl of blood this weekend. I mean, obviously, if you expect that's what's going to happen, that's probably what's going to happen. So obviously go in more optimistically than that. But even if it does happen, yum, drink up that grief and that anger and that frustration, alchemize it into ecstasy, right? And after all of this, Reflect on your failures. Reflect on your successes. Once someone said to Swami Sarvapirandaji, all this non-duality stuff, I just forget it in the times when I need it. And only later do I remember it. You know, only later do I reflect and say, oh, I missed my chance. I acted in a way that reified my illusion. I wasn't able to access my knowledge. So it's wasted then. What's the point? What's the point of right now dwelling on the past and like reflecting? And Swami Sarvapirandaji said, no, no, actually it's good. And she was relating this to me. She said, no, it's good because you're setting up that sanskara, that non-duality sanskara. If every time you look back and you say, that was uh, a moment when I didn't remember my highest truth, that was a slip up. Then in some way, there's like a Pavlovian conditioning here that's being set up. And it's so important to treat this with joy and triumph. Because if every time you remember your failure and you punish yourself for that, then you will very quickly learn to stop remembering failures. You know, you'll train yourself to not remember them. But if every time you recognize a failure and you take the Buddhist approach and notice it as a noble failure and say, the very fact that I noticed that my non-duality failed back there, that is a success. That I can look back and say, I knew better. Damn, that's not a lot. Not a lot of people can say that. Not a lot of people can look back and say, I knew better. I didn't act according to my ideals. And that's okay because I know I didn't. <laughs> so you ought to celebrate even those slip-ups. And I think on that note, I wish you all the most joyous Thanksgiving dinner ahead. I wish for many sips of the bowl of blood. And definitely, I hope that we can all ease into this reality as this wonderful play and, and theater and movie, because ultimately, ultimately speaking, you have nothing to worry about. It is a dream. You might realize that now, or you might realize that when you're dead, but you may, may even just take our word for it. This is all a dream. You can relax. <laughs> so thank you all so much. Om. Atmanam Chidvijaniyat Ayamasmiti Purushaha Kimichan Kasya Kamaya Shariram Manusangjwarit Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Arpanamastu Om If one is to realize that self then desiring what and for whose sake should she continue to be anxious about the world. Om, this world is filled with that consciousness. This inner world is filled with that consciousness. Only consciousness exists, and this consciousness is neither aggrandized nor diminished by its manifestations as waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. That very consciousness am I. Birthless am I. Deathless am I. Changeless am I. Om, may this be an offering to my teacher. Peace. Peace. Peace.
deeply grateful for all of you. Thank you for coming today. On the 5th of December, we have a special edition. Um, Swami Medhanandaji is coming to have a discussion comparing Kashmiri Shaivism of kind of the you know, tantra that we talk about, Shakta Advaita, with his, his, his conception of Sri Ramakrishna's Vijnana Vedanta. So we've been having some discussions between us about the similarities and differences between Kashmir Shaivism and Vijnana Vedanta. And a lot of people actually, when they hear him talk about Vijnana Vedanta, they say, oh, that's just Kashmir Shaivism. This world is a real manifestation of Brahman. That's not true. It's, there's many differences. And uh, that's because a lot of people don't understand the depth of what he's saying, and they also don't understand the depth of Kashmir Shaivism. That's why a lot of people superficially think Kashmir Shaivism is Vijnana Vedanta. There are a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities, but also some key differences. Um, and we're going to talk about it, hopefully, together on the 5th of December. How it will work is for 15 minutes, he'll present Vijnana Vedanta, as he understands it, from Sri Ramakrishna's teachings. Then I'll take 15 minutes, mother willing, to present Kashmiri Shaivism and explain some similarities and differences with Sri Ramakrishna's teaching. And then we'll have a conversation together. Maybe a little bit of a debate, too. You know, I'll maybe argue a little bit for Shankara's Kevala Advaita and why there's room for that within Kashmiri Shaivism, why there are Kashmiri Shaivite views that the world is unreal. Then we'll argue for uh, similarities. To what extent is what Sri Ramakrishna presenting is the highest absolute, the same as Kashmiri Shaivism, etc., etc. Then there'll be a QA. So we'll open the floor for QA and hopefully also discussion and debate. It will be December 5th. 7.30. Though, of course, it's Monday and we will start at 7, but the event itself will be at 7.30 to about like 8.39, depending on how long we want to go. So that's coming up, okay? December 5th. This week, Wednesday, there will be a Hatha Yoga class, but on Thursday, there will not be the Tantra class. Um, yoga World Heart is taking off Thanksgiving. So there's no Thursday class. And there will be Friday class, I believe. Okay, so I'll see you at all those classes later this week. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. All right. So let's... Bye, dear cat. <laughs>